I think the main idea really is just this concept of what is a theology of home, um, and and you know what what's the background of that and the idea behind that. And one of the things that became really clear to me when looking at the home is that there are elements that are common to the home that are also common to a church, um, but we can also say them in a, in a different kind of way about heaven. Join the best in the movement. It's conservative conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Marlo Slayback. Um, and we're joined today by Carrie Grass and Noel Maring, who work with the Ethics and Public Policy Center and also co- or also founded and co-wrote the book series Theology of Home. So um, I'm really excited to have uh, both ladies on today because I think what we're going to discuss ultimately is how to live an integrated life and uh, especially one where our surroundings are reflective of our interior lives and can support its flourishing. So if you're here today and maybe you're not in a position to design a home, for example, or start a garden of your own, um, maybe you live in an apartment, uh, that's okay. And uh, I hope this conversation will go deeper than just that. And I'm sure it will. And and no matter what season of life you're in, I think this will be um, an enriching discussion for you. So uh, thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having having us. And before we get to our discussion, um, first, I would love for the ladies to perhaps tell us a little bit about themselves and um, in addition to perhaps EPPC and um, your work on this book, is there anything else that you'd like to kind of give us some background on? Um, yeah, I guess I'll start. We, um, you know, we we wrote the book, Theology of Home, uh, Finding the um, Eternal in the Everyday, I th- how many years ago? Noel, five years ago it came out, I think, roughly. And um, in the meantime, prior to that, we already had a blog, actually, that is called also theologyofhome.com. And, you know, one of the things that, that I realized in, in my research, I've actually written 10 books. And um, one of the books that I wrote really looked at, at women today and a lot of the struggles that we're having with women and why don't women, you know, why are we losing seemingly this concept of woman? And so... I realized a lot of that had to do with the fact that we weren't engaging in the culture. Um, so much of womanhood was really being destroyed by the left through culture, through things like magazines and Hollywood and, and um, you know, book, book publishing, politics, the fashion industry. And so this is sort of our very meager um, effort to sort of step into that. And how do we start using the ideas, conservative ideas, but putting them in the kind of context that women really love to absorb and, and look at, you know, a beautiful book with incredible pictures and things to to inspire us. So I, I would say that's really where it has come from. Um, and our we have a project at, at Ethics and Public Policy Center where we're really focused on this question of how do we integrate these pieces of, um, you know, the home and, and see how these are really valuable as far as the conservative point of view. They're valuable to, to men. They're valuable to women, of course, to, to children and, and focused on how do we start looking at this in a, in a broader way instead of just through education and whatnot. So Noelle and I have also both published separate books that my books have been on feminism and her books have been more on, on the woke ideology. And she can tell you more about that. Um, but we see that those are the pieces that are really working against women. Um, at the same time, all the elements of homemaking have really come back into vogue and into fashion. But 
homemaking itself hasn't come back into fashion as far as that term. So in any event, we, we feel like we're really fighting an uphill battle to try and help people understand that these these desires that we have to, um, you know, bake sourdough bread or do, you know, plant a garden um, or to host people in our homes and, and enter through entertainment. These are really good fundamental things that we should be encouraging rather than discouraging in the culture. Yeah, no, I can't, don't have much to add to that other than, well, just the personal background of that Carrie and I met in grad school at Franciscan University of Steubenville. We were both getting a master's in philosophy um, too many years ago to say, uh, and then reconnected a few a couple of years, I think, before we started writing together. So um, it's nice to have that history between the two of us. Um, uh, I My solo book is called Awake Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. And it's interesting because our work at EPPC has really, um, it's really sort of integrated all of the efforts we're, things we're working on independently, but also through Theology of Home, just the idea that um, so much of the ideology is what is trying to pull people away from understanding any robust and important understanding of the beauty of what they're doing in their home for, for single people and also for married couples and not just for women, either for men too, you know, that the importance of men prioritizing their home life as well, I think is a part of uh, what we write about, particularly in Theology of Home 1. Um, so it's been nice to see all of those sort of seemingly disparate pieces kind of come together um, through our work at EBBC, but also um, through our, our web daily website, which we really make an effort to make um, formative, informative, and also fun and beautiful. We have a free subscription. So we have a nice email list that goes out, it kind of curates the news from things from like recipes and organizing to, you know, uh, spiritual stuff to some uh, keeping up with what's going on in the world um, to, you know, various practical aspects of daily life. So that's been a really fun th project and important piece of Theology of Home too that we've been working on together. Great. Thank you, ladies. And um, before we get into our discussion, I'd like to also thank our listeners for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Interpolated Studies Institute, and our mission is Educating for Liberty. So if you'd like to join us in fulfilling this mission, uh, please make sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening to podcasts, and uh, that'll help us reach more listeners like yourself. So I love um, what you're both saying about the the role of homemaking in in life today. And you even pointed to examples of um, some trends that we've seen cropping up. And I've certainly seen those as well. Um, actually, one of my questions was going to be about where you see if that's reflective of something greater that's happening at the more granular level, especially among the, the Zoomers. Um, but I'd love to hear more first, just to unpack some of the language we're using. What does homemaking mean to you? Because it, it is something that um, can be viewed as a very loaded term. Um, it's become the subject of a lot of, you know, socioeconomic considerations. And um, women are thinking about things, including vocation and career, when we're having a conversation about homemaking and defining it. And um, I personally prefer the term vocation um, than career. Um, but obviously, in larger, the, the society at large, perhaps would not use that same terminology. Um, and obviously, vocation carries less of a uh, the connotation of paid professional work. Um, it's more uh, linked to the domestic arts and, and unpaid labor, right? So how would you d define homemaking and how does that track on, or map onto um, maybe does, maybe doesn't more than just, um, and I don't say just in a diminishing term, but more than the uh, domestic arts that are 
tied to perhaps like full-time stay-at-home motherhood, um, which obviously is extremely edifying and noble work. Um, But is it something that is more general than that to you? Um, Yeah, I'll get started. I mean, I think the main idea really is just this concept of what is a theology of home um, and, and, you know, what, what's the background of that and the idea behind that. And one of the things that became really clear to me when looking at the home is that there are elements that are common to the home that are also common to a church, um, but we can also say them in a, in a different kind of way about heaven. Um, And so the, the real goal of a theology of home is just this recognition that you know, the, the heart's desire of people is to get the ones that they love to heaven, to, to create an environment where people can become the best that God, you know, people that God intended them to be. And, you know, Noel can talk about this probably more in depth, but I think the main vocation, as you mentioned, is really fatherhood and motherhood. And this doesn't mean that every woman is going to be a mother. We know that there are other vocations to religious life and single life and, you know, those other elements. Um, but what it, it does include is motherhood as psychological and spiritual in addition. So a mature woman in some capacity is going to mother others because she's creating, she's helping to nourish people. She's helping to create a place where they can grow and become who they are. She's caring for them. She's dialed into them. You know, there's this real richness that women have in terms of relationships that we really, uh, you know, are dialed into in ways that, uh, you know, men not aren't, Always, and this is, I think, a, a, a gift that women have. Not to say that men don't have it, but women have it in a, I think, in a more universal sense. Um, so this, I, I think, was what motivated our writing this book was just to sort of look at what are these elements that are common to the home. You know, our homes, in certain respect, have become almost like a, a hotel. You know, where you just people meet up there at night. This is where you sleep. Maybe you get something to eat. But there's not really a, a greater depth going on that points to this this idea of um, you know, parenthood of, of taking care, um, as a mother and as a father and leading and guiding others to it. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's probably a place to start. Noel, I'll let you add, add to that in terms of the, the mother and father piece. Sure. Well, I'll just pick up also on, you know, the term homemaker. I, I, I agree with you. And we talk about that, address that directly in the books, just that that term has taken on such a loaded connotation and obviously, um, one of the things that I think Carrie and I can both could both speak to is just that, you know, motherhood. There are different seasons of motherhood. Um, I was at home and I homeschooled for years, and um, and now things shift and look different. And my youngest is now eleven, almost twelve, um, and I'm working a lot more and traveling and speaking. And so, but I still, I still, it's not that now that I work, I no longer care about the home or feel that it is incumbent on me to really be prioritizing and giving special care to make this a real haven for our family and to make people feel connected and loved and that we're not just an aggregate of people, but we're like, we're a whole, almost like the whole, the home is the body that forms the family. Um, so, you know, I think that we, we make that home, the term homemaking too um, specific to our detriment. I think that everyone who lives in a home and cares deeply about their family, the people in it are trying to make a home. And so, um, I still consider myself um, a homemaker, um, and, and I think my husband does too. And and that's an interesting thing is that you know, um, as Carrie was indicating, all women are we're distinctive in so far as we're called to be mothers in some level, psychological, spiritual, physical. But men are as well called to be fathers. And so I think we've done a disservice by kind of defining the man as his job is out in the world. The woman, if she's a stay-at-home mom, her job is in the home. 
actually the priority for both is is the home life, is the family, um, and that the the job is for the sake of the people he's coming back to. If he's you know more in the traditional role of going out and working, and I think that that that's part of the things that was or one of the things that was particularly interesting to write about in theology of home. It's just what does this mean for men? Um, and my husband, he, uh, you know, he would come home from work and he would say, okay, now this is where the crux of my day begins. You know, I'm not here to now relax from the real work of my day, but now I'm here to actually bring my best self and engage the mo most deeply with the people who matter the most. Um, so that was a beautiful part of writing it too. Yeah, I love that. And that's something I've been thinking a lot about. And I, I highly recommend to our listeners, and I'm sure you both are familiar with Mary Harrington and some of her work on um, especially kind of, th there seems to be a lack of historical sensibility, I think, when we, when we talk about, um, homemaking and what it has meant, especially in Amer American life. I think a lot of people tend to, uh, it evokes almost this caricature of the 1950s housewife who is, you know, doing a lot of the, the domestic economy, um, of, of the household was very confined to, a suburban home where the husband's work was, um, you know, at an office. Um, whereas you think in the bigger picture, uh, everyone was working, you know, on the farm or whatever. It was more of a subsistence situation where um, the work wasn't outsourced to a, or uh, it, it wasn't, you know, out in the city or beyond the, um, the, the parameters of, of the house and the property. Um, it was women, children, and fathers, and it was mothers and fathers who were working within those parameters. And so I think that that's been an interesting um, distinction and a good one, I think, that I've seen Mary make, especially on social media, that has kind of, I think, cultivated a better historical sensibility about what, what that work has looked like. And men's role, especially in homemaking, your book is accessible, but it is targeted towards women, which I love. And um, especially in, I think, in America, homes can be very female-coded places. Um, like, you see the presence of things like the man cave, for example, um, where men are kind of siloed away from the otherwise more curated and manicured parts of the house. Um, but this historically isn't the case. And um, I was actually talking to Erica Bakayoki um, the other week, and I, I know you ladies know her because she's mentioned both of you, um, but she was even telling me that um, homes couldn't have ever operated this way before a certain period in American history because when men came home from working on the farm or elsewhere, they may have had very dirty boots and they, you know, needed a place that would accept them and not have and have the leisure time um, and comfort in his own, own home without, you know, totally upsetting the harmony and the cleanliness. So that's a long way of asking, how do, how do you think men participate in the economy of, uh, you know, the domestic household when it comes to things like, you know, if, I guess, where does the um, distinction between a, um, a woman's vocation and her um, responsibilities for child rearing and the things that she's specialized to do, like, my husband loves to say that he sometimes has the realization that he's like, wow, Marlo, like I couldn't do a third of the things that or like, you know, 90 percent of the things that you do for our kids, for our son, um, because that's just by virtue of you being a woman. And that's, I think, a realization that we've departed from as we try to um, we starting starting to view women as not being specialized, as being able to do everything that men can do, obviously, to a degree regarding careers, there are, you know, there are certainly parallels, but 
um, biology does not, obviously, <laughs> there are things that we can't um, depart from. So how would you view, you know, in, in light of that and some of the different, um, obviously, after the sexual revolution, things have changed there. What would you respond to those sort of those gendered questions, I guess? Noelle, I'll let you go ahead and start on this one. Yeah, no. Um, well, something Carrie and I talk a lot about is that there's a lot of ways in which the beauty of being a woman has been uh, presented as something that's sort of weak. Um, and so, you know, Rich, part of what I think we both try to do through the Theology Home Project is to actually remember the beauty of the, those more womanly traits, you know, that as you say, there's a lot of things that we can do that men can't be just by virtue of being mothers and, you know, nursing the baby and bearing the baby and holding the baby. And sometimes even we're sometimes we're better at comforting the baby, you know, when they're really little. Um, but the, uh, I, I think what we forget is also that there's a great vulner. There's, there's a lot of power in that, but there's also a lot of vulnerability, you know, that I think about being postpartum, you know, and my husband um, closing the doors because he knew he figured, oh, maybe she'll forget, get grab a nap if I shut the door and take the kids out away from her. And, you know, and and I and realizing just in those small little details of, of family life that I really needed that. You know, I really needed him to kind of be aware and plugged in enough that he could see, OK, no, Noelle is, you know, pretty vulnerable right now. And she's, you know, physically weak and she's, you know, emotionally kind of uh, um, very raw. Um, and just recognizing that vulnerability and saying, okay, as the, as the husband, as the man, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of protect that and let her nurture what she's got going on, um, with the baby and also healing and all these things. And, um, it's a really beautiful ballet, that kind of, um, way in which men and women are, I think, really ordained and made to sort of work together. It's not necessarily a, you know, I think people get so hung up on sort of really rigid roles, you know, that only women do this and only men do that. And, um, you know, Carrie actually writes beautifully too about this, just the idea that, you know, what we are is primary, you know, and so it's, it's more about who I am as a woman. And then from that flows oftentimes a more inclin an inclination to certain activities. But, um, you know, I think that we've often spoken about this in too shallow of a way where we're reducing the differences between men and women to our functions rather to actually like a, a real metaphysical reality that's embedded in us. It's quite beautiful. Yeah, I would just add to that. I think, you know, as Noel mentioned, we have this shallow sense. And I think some of that comes from the sexual revolution. It comes from feminism in the sense of asking the question, how do we make women more like men? And we see this sort of in the girl boss um, mentality. And, I, you know, it's interesting to watch these trends now that are are bubbling up, that the trad wife or the soft girl or, or whatever. But I think, you know, there's th these are, are impulses that people are tired of feeling like they have to sort of fit in this box of – a masculine kind of woman that goes to work and is ambitious and, you know, all of the things that are sort of portrayed in, in the culture instead of really recognizing that, that, you know, there's a different way to be. And, you know, I think this is where the left has been so incredibly successful in their messaging is just this idea of, you know, what does a successful woman look like? Um, it's, it's all the things that they're embodying again through media and whatnot. Um, and what is, what is the opposite woman look like? You know, she's a, a, a doormat. She's wearing a red bonnet with a red robe and, and a fertility cult. You know, they have very much boxed us into thinking that this is how we need to live our lives as women if we're not going to be if we're not going to be with them you know it's sort of this binary um these binary concepts which of course the human mind loves these binary concepts we like one extreme or the other and this is why they've been able to sort of paint us into this corner instead of having a much more 
rich and robust understanding of really what a, a mother is and what she does. And, uh, you know, I think that when we, when we give it some, any kind of real thought, just how important our, our own mothers are in our, our lives and in our development. Um, even the real tragedy that happens when you, when you see a woman with young children pass away. Um, you know, there are fewer things that are more tear, tear jerking than that kind of dynamic where you know small children are left without their mother. And how do you explain that to a small child? Um, and just that, you know, it's gut wrenching. So I, I think that these are, like Noel said, I think these are things that we need to come back to and revisit as conservatives and just say, we're not we're not looking at this properly. We need to see this in a way that's healthy, ordered, and beautiful, where there's really flourishing again among the a, a couple to not necessarily like fit into these boxes of what it is that we're doing, but how it is that we as a as a unique couple with different gifts and attributes work together to to make a family healthy and and ordered and beautiful. And do you see any? Any hope in, um, especially among, I, I'm just thinking of um, something that a lot of friends of mine have been commenting commenting on is the popularity of TikTok accounts. And you mentioned kind of these like pigeonholed caricatures of, you know, the trad wife. And, but I've been seeing, and you mentioned a few of the different, like the soft girl examples like that, but the popularity of these TikTok accounts that um, are, you know, obviously Zoomers are TikTok is like their their Twitter, um, their Facebook, and um, these accounts are showing women living very you know bucolic lives uh, on their farm or otherwise very aesthetically rustic and beautiful um, settings and 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 homes. And they have you know maybe several kids, maybe they're baking and playing and doing other you know mom activities traditionally fe- very you know female coded mother uh, you know maternal activities with their children and. Um, one example comes to mind is Ballerina Farm. I think that's probably one of the bigger accounts that has gained a lot of, I think, attraction and um, followers. But it, it is appealing, right? They're living very beautiful lives. And you can argue that, sure, it may be um, cushioned with wealth and other forms of, um, you know, like income that support that sort of lifestyle. But that doesn't really matter to, I think, the the Gen Z, you know, 20-something who's looking at it and saying, like, wow, I want that. Like, I, I don't want the alternative, even if that is coming from a place of that polarization that is so um, ingrained in our heads. Um, there is something that isn't instinctively or reflexively um, off-putting about that lifestyle, it seems, anymore. Whereas perhaps several years ago, we'd look at that and maybe say, like, sure, it's pretty, but it's also, like, oppressive. Or I would feel so boxed in if I had that sort of life at home with my children. So do you th- do you see anything happening there? Or is this just a, a trend that's limited and um, not as wide-reaching in scope? Yeah. Um, well, Carrie, do you want to go ahead? Sure. Um, I would just say, you know, one of the things that Noelle and I were really purposeful in doing in our second book, Theology of Home, um, the Spiritual Art of Homemaking, was really focusing on this idea of how do we come up with a new grammar to speak about women? Because, again, we, we've had this model of either you're a doormat or you're the successful career woman. And women just don't really understand how to live in, in, in a functioning, healthy way. You know, we don't even have the goal of what is a good woman anymore. I think nobody really asked that question. It's not at the forefront of our minds. Um, and so I think that that's, uh, was one of the things that we've really focused on is trying to, trying to give women a way to think about that from 
very tangible examples. Um, so I think that one of the things that's happening with this is really heartening because it, it's first of all, it's, it's questioning the status quo, which, you know, I know I grew up very much with a sense of how, how a woman ought to be. And I think that this is a really healthy thing because it, it's starting to show that motherhood isn't just drudgery. Um, and this is, you know, something that I've chronicled from the, around the, the, the turn of the century in the 1900s. This was really the popular way of speaking about motherhood was in these terms of, of drudgery, of, you know, our fertility being a, a weight that we had to be freed from, those kinds of things. So I, I think it's, um, you know, it's really interesting to see sort of this pushback and just a real way of representing life. Now, of course, it's, there's a lot of things that are aspirational, but I, I think that it's, this is what the left has done with the career as well. There were a lot of things that were aspira aspirational about all the sitcoms that we watched, you know, and, and were shown sort of these ideal lives of, of women like Murphy Brown and whatnot. So in any event, I, I think it's really encouraging. Um, and obviously I'll let Noel chime in too, but I, I, I'm seeing it as in a positive way as far as just giving our imaginations a way to think about things differently than what we have been given by um, kind of elite women in the culture. Yeah, no, I was going to say something similar, just that, um, you know, I, I think that we are so used to seeing aspirational lifestyles portrayed on one side of the pendulum. And then when it swings to the other side, somehow people get really um, bothered by that. But, you know, this is just something that happens with cultural movements. I think it's just natural that there's going to be things that are maybe um, presenting, you know, a more glossy version of something that they're trying to move the culture toward. And then there's going to be things that are more substantive and maybe more authentic and maybe more honest and, you know, feel feel a little bit more real for people who want to resonate with something that is less aspirational. So, um, and, I, and, I, and I actually think that we've done a, uh, we've really strived um, in Theology of Home to sort of walk both lines. Like we really want to present the beauty. And so the books, one of the comments we get a lot is just that they're just really beautiful. You know, they're just fun to look at because they're, they are so appealing. They really draw you in. Um, and sometimes people say, well, I wish that there was, you know, more, um, you know, messy homes or something like that. And, um, Carrie and I often just respond, well, you know, when I look at any magazine, or I, I don't necessarily want to look at a messy home. I want to look at something that's inspiring to me and something that's beautiful. And it's not to make me feel bad. It's to help to stir something creative in me and something that longs for that sort of beauty and order. Um, at the same time, we're very different from all those magazines because we have pregnant women and a bunch of children running around and fathers who are engaged and um, there's a lot more life in it. So I, I think we've walked that line in a way that it's the home is not a showpiece. It's rather, you know, a place that serves the people that are in it um, and that the, there's a real human element to it. I think that um, this has been very important to both of us. And in that way, I think it does bring that more real authenticity to it. Um, so that's been important to do, I think, just because of all of these sort of cultural um, things happening with, um, you know, what are we, what, what's the message we're giving? People want authenticity, but people also want to be inspired. And, you know, we have to walk all of that in a way that feels really honest and really, um, but still prioritizes beauty because beauty is honest too. The, the soul longs for it. And so we need to feed that and recognize that as well. I love your comment about the messy home because um, something that I think, and we can, I think uh, this is a good point to talk about the more like concrete details of like interior design, because I think with a lot of um, the, the more like contemporary styles, it's very hard to have a messy home. Um, when your entire, like the color scheme of your house is largely whites and grays, a like, you know, a child's like, 
crazy, you know, crayon, like their paintings, their, um, like my, my son has these blocks that are this really, really bright, you know, his Legos are like red and green and blue. It's so many different colors. And that would stick out in a house that was, um, you know, made of, and these are, I've been in beautiful big houses where it's just white and black and gray. And it's really, really hard to maintain a home that is messy because it just sticks out like a sore thumb. Whereas, um, a design style that I really love and that I think is just so humane and civilized while being able to like have that, that give and flexibility to the, the ebb and flow and that like cadence of, of just life with children, life with, you know, hobbies and animals and, you know, and bringing the outdoors in, whether that means through hunting is um, like English countryside. And um, I specifically bring that style up because I, I was looking at a picture of Roger Scruton's study the other day and or the other week. And it occurred to me while kind of like studying it, studying the study is that like you look at his table and there was clutter everywhere, but it didn't stick out as like mess. It didn't stick out as like this, you know, just total chaos or anarchy. There was a harmony in the home. Um, and it, it was a very, it's a very traditional style, but it's also, it has really honest elements, um, like wood, um, color, texture, pattern, um, not everything was heavily curated. There was no grayish in sight. And it occurred to me how how different, how polar opposite from our current, um, you know, I think there's a lot of emphasis on cleanliness and tidiness and just not even from, you know, cleaning up after ourselves, but the style itself is like, I don't mean to like pick on Kim Kardashian's house, but her house is like just minimalist, the most minimal of the minimalist, right? It's like, how do people live in that? How do children, you know, live in that without needing constant attention to pick up after them? So just from the more concrete side of things, how do you think about interior design trends and how parents who maybe, you know, mothers who don't have time to maybe like study an interior design uh, book or like any, you know, magazines to see like what's hot right now? Um, what is the like, what is organic to you and what elements of a home make it um, a suitable place for children to live, for for men, for husbands to to live without feeling like they need to be siloed in their man cave downstairs? And you could even I would love to hear about, you know, if there are certain trends or if this is something that cannot be boxed into like a type of design. Yeah, no, I mean, I I've historically have been attracted to minimalism just because it just seems so peaceful. But I've realized that, you know, that it's not practical for family life, as you've said. And I do think there's something, a trend in culture towards minimalism that reflects sort of this general like trend towards becoming like machines in a way. You know, there's something really antiseptic about it, something very controlled about it. But there's not much that's very human about it. Um, and as you say, juxtaposing that with the English countryside, there's something in incredibly human about thinking about Roger Scruton's office with these real materials that are not necessarily, I imagine, you know, lots of wood and books and old, you know, and um, not a lot of plastic. <laughs> but, um, you know, obviously with a bunch of children, there's plastics going to come into your life. But uh, I think, you know, just restoring the integrity of, you know, there's a movement with a lot of families to sort of more Montessori type materials and things that are have more integrity in how they're crafted. Um, and then the, your mess seems a little bit more beautiful, I think. Um, that, that's not necessarily practical for everyone. But as far as trends go, 
I, you know, I, I think that it's, it trends in some ways as sort of a manipulation just to get us to spend more money. And, you know, it's sort of like when you try to dress in ways that are trendy, but they don't work for you. You know, you're, you, at some point in your womanhood, you realize, oh, I can't, you know, that, that silhouette will never look flattering on me. I need to become mature enough to understand what actually works on, on me. And I think our homes are sort of similar to that. You know, we, there was a phase in the 90s where everyone tried to turn their home into a Tuscan villa, you know, with all the browns and then, you know, the the tiles and uh, really ornate granite and all this stuff. And um, I think a lot of people regretted that because they were trying to force their home to something that it's not. You know, if you're living in a 1960s tract home, it's never going to look like a Tuscan villa, no matter how much money you pour into it. So I, I do think it's better to try to steer clear of trends and try to focus more on things that have historical and fam, um, ancestral meaning to you. If there are hand-me-downs from your family, from your parents, um, you know, when, one of the most beautiful homes I've been in was a family of 10 and they were have very modest means, but she put a lot of order into things and she bought things in bulk. And so she had big canisters for all of her bulk nuts and her bulk flour and her bulk oils and and they were carefully laid out in order. And then she had framed children's artwork because she wasn't necessarily going out and buying artwork. And um, there was so much love put into the home that I think we forget that, that oftentimes what makes a home most beautiful is just that somebody is caring about the way it looks and putting the order and the, and the, and the love into it. That's not necessarily reflective of luxury, but is reflective of, of real beauty, you know, real human beauty and love. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with with all of that in the sense that we um, in, in theology of home one we actually talk about sort of the elements that go into the home these sort this, these transcendentals that we I mentioned earlier that we sort of see on on par with a church and also with heaven and um, one of those is is absolutely order and um, you, you know I think order is something that. It can obviously feel very elusive, especially when you have small children. Um, but it, it doesn't really take very much as a few bins to slide something in the corner or even teaching your children the art of cleaning up after themselves. I mean, this is much easier said than done. I, you know, I have five children. The youngest is three and can be very, very challenging. Um, so I think it's that balance of like trying to make things, systematize them in such a way that it's easy to, to keep order. But at the same time, obviously balancing that with, out with the humanity that you're dealing with and all this pressures and strains, especially when your children are very small and trying to, to balance that out in a, in a healthy way. Um, but these, these transcendentals, I think, are really can be applied to almost any kind of home. Um, and that's obviously order. Like I mentioned, I think light is really important. Things like, uh, you know, lamps and the right kind of light bulbs and, you know, these kinds of things can, can go a long way. Um, different window dressings, all of that. So it seems uh, really important things to think about that doesn't have to be incredibly expensive either. Um, and then, of course, there's, you know, other basic things that need to be in a home, things like comfort and safety. Um, hospitality is another one that we talk a lot about in the book is it, are, are homes a place where people feel welcome when they come into them. And, um, you know, that's for years I we did not entertain because I just didn't feel like our house is a place where we could welcome people because it was that struggle of, of dealing with so many children at, at young ages. Um, but that's again what, like Noel mentioned previously, we we have these different seasons of life, and those are important to to be responsive to. And I, I think hospitality is just one of those elements that you know it doesn't have to be something luxurious and, and, you know, making that distinction between what feels luxurious and what's beautiful. Luxurious is something that um, is pleasurable for us, but beauty is something that calls us out of ourselves. And I think, you know, I've had people have dinner with us 
And we, we every Saturday night we do this set of prayers, um, a fre- reflection of sort of Lord's Day prayers, what we call them, different psalms and, and readings, and we light candles. And um, it's just a really beautiful family event. And, I, I, you know, we sort of take it for granted because we do it all the time. But when you have people from the outside come into it, there's something very simple and beautiful about having a whole family, um, you know, orienting themselves to to God on a, a Saturday evening. Um, so it's those kinds of things that I think that, you know, it's less about the brick and mortar and the fabrics and whatnot. It's a lot more about, like, like Noelle said, the love that goes into it and what it is that we're, you know, how we're using our gifts to engage those in our family and, of course, those from the outside world that are coming into our homes as well. And how would you say the the items that you, the physical items that you put in your home, but also obviously these different traditions, these different um, habits that you build within its walls, how would you say you've, and maybe this is, um, you know, this is obviously uh, kind of reflected in your book, but what about these aspects of homemaking do you think are things that legitimately you see reflected in your own, whether it's your own children, or perhaps this can be more a general commentary on how children are raised. So something, just an example for how uh, me and my husband have approached. It's funny because there's this uh, like funny idea that people who work in tech end up being the ones who send their kids to Montessori schools and saying like no technology in the home. That's kind of us. My husband works in tech and we don't have a TV in our home because we um, and my my son watches TV like at his grandparents, which was very limited, and we are very strict about what he watches. But at home, the TV almost takes up all the oxygen in the room because it's almost like the, the center ornament, um, at least in our house, because just of how it's structured. Um, so we don't have one. And it, it occurred to me um, when we sit down to have conversation and, you know, our son is playing there's not this, uh, the energy isn't all, and the way we even position our bodies isn't towards the television, like it is perhaps at our parents' house, at my parents' house. Um, that's just one example, but um, it, it also made me feel a little bit better about, you know, the just that's just one piece of the larger kind of picture of the things that I bring into the home, whether it's, you know, iconography or um, you know, it's it's a beautiful painting made with like oils and nice colors that aren't, um, you know, ma- like mass produced paintings that you would just like pick up that look, the Tuscan Villa one. <laughs> I love uh, that's something I've been thinking a lot about because I, I see the same paintings in everyone's home that, you know, maybe were picked up at a, uh, you know, big box store or something in the early 2000s. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you're comfortable in your home, then I'm happy for you. Uh, so no judgment. But um, in my own home, you know, I've I know so many moms who um, who love your book and they do a lot of their shopping at like thrift stores and and Goodwills and um, other, you know, secondhand stores. And they find like really stunning pieces with beautiful frames and and colors. And it it, it seems like that sort of approach to homemaking is um, and, and I still have to see the effects. My son is only a toddler, but it almost seems like children are able to almost develop a creativity of their own and a appreciation and different type of taste for, for culture and the particularity of the place they live when that's their surroundings. So I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on how um, there is that, uh, that influence in the place that we live on, on, you know, young children and, and the family. 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I remember when I was a younger mom and the kids were little, there was this huge trend of TV shows of taking a diamond in the rough and putting a left sweat equity into it and making it something really special and beautiful and unique. And um, I think there's an element of um, home decorating that is sort of similar to the TikTok videos you're talking about earlier, that people just need to start, particularly when we're younger, just experimenting with things and just trying it out, you know, and um, I love that sense of the creativity that's born out of sort of need, right? So we didn't have a budget really for decorating. So I remember finding things on Craigslist and at thrift stores and painting them and trying to sand them down and try to make something beautiful. And the kids were just along for the ride because they were always with me. And so they would get into the action too. And I think there's some sort of pride that goes into seeing that we're all in it as a team sort of trying to improve this common project, which is our home and family life. Um, that, that is really beautiful. Um, and, and I think that's important for women to feel that sort of freedom rather than getting intimidated by, you know, the call to have a perfect home or a beautiful home that we can actually just kind of get our hands dirty and just throw things up against the wall and try it out and see what works. And then in that experimentation, if we treat it as something fun with sort of a, you know, a sporting spirit, then our kids sort of see it as something fun too. and something that they can just jump in and into life, whatever their interests are and just start trying things. I think that's a really beautiful um, lesson to communicate to kids and for them to see that their, you know, that their mom is sort of leading the way in that, I think is, is a, is a, is a neat thing for them to see as well, that it's not something that has to be um, anxious, anxiety ridden or about performance. Or as Carrie said, we talk about the distinction between luxury and beauty. Luxury serves me, beauty points us outward. Um, And that if we are, you know, hung up on perfectionism, then we lose what is actually beautiful about this project of home. So um, part of that is being human and having errors and having weaknesses and having foibles and then beginning again and all all of those beautiful, very human things. I think there's a lot in um, trying to set up our home that mirrors that. Yeah, I I would certainly agree with all that. I think, you know, the interesting thing about Noelle and I are in our relationship is she is so much more gifted at design than I am. You know, I know what I like when I see it, but I don't know how to make things look good. And so it's always sort of she and I have this this challenge um, because we also have an, an online store. And so we, this question of, you know, what we put in our homes and what we're going to sell on our store, um, which supports a, a significant amount of our work, is really interesting because, it, I, you know, I, we try to find things that we feel like people will that they'll be unique, that they can be good gifts to give to people, that they can they can be meaningful and um, made with beautiful materials, um, woods and metals and, you know, good waxes and, uh, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, so that's that's something that I feel like I spend a lot of my time thinking about, you know, what would be a great gift. And the nice thing is, is that I'm pretty much, you know, our customer. Like I, I think a lot of people that I, I'm when are buying are buying um, because I'm very much like them. Um, but I wouldn't say that I'm I'm great at um, you know decorating my home. I think I I can sort of pull things together, but it's not some sort of overwhelmingly beautiful um, thing that people are sort of awestruck by. I, I just don't have those gifts. Um, so for me, it's it comes down to just the, what are what are some of the basics? How do we keep things organized? How do we keep our our space from feeling like it's just overrun by kids stuff? You know, just very it's a very practical thing that I think, uh, you know, even if you just do that, your home is going to feel richer and um, more welcoming because you're not going to be battling 
all this stuff, you know, decluttering. I have a sister who's just incredible about decluttering. And there are certain days where I'm like, I just need to act like Jill um, right now and get rid of some of this stuff because I, I'll just feel guilty about it otherwise and hang on to it. So that, that it's for me, it's more about just clearing out and, and there's so much comes in with five kids. Um, but trying to hang on to the, the very special things that my children made when they were small and are work, you know, that are important to them. But at the same time, also, you know, balancing that out with our, our real life and the limitations of the size of our home and, you know, all of those kinds of things. So I, I think I tend to be much more practical about this. And, and instead of, um, you know, being in a place where I, it, it's something that I really want to carve out a budget for and whatnot. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's going to look different for each woman and for where her priorities are and, how she just how she wants to spend her time too. Well, thank you ladies so much. This has been a wonderful chat and I'm I'm so glad we've been able to talk about your your book, um your books pl- plural. Um and I I'd love to have our um audience members know a little bit more about the offerings that you have um because I know it's not just Theology of Home 1, it's Theology of Home 2 as well. And then I believe you have additional books on top of that. So if there's um, more of your work that you'd like to plug and maybe giving us a rundown of all of the Theology of Home series, um, we'll plug them in the show notes for um, listeners to be able to, you know, go to and purchase. Um, And then anything else that you two are working on that you would like to let our listeners know about. Yeah, so we have the first two Theology of Homes, and then we did Theology of Home 3, which is at the sea. Um, and that was really fun to, to photograph. We were out in Cali- – my family went out to California to be with Noel's family. And, um, you know, it was just all those things about – the, the, the sea and water and the ways in which our lives can really be formed by them and the joy that it can, can bring um, through water. Um, and then that, the fourth one was actually not written by us. It was written by our colleague, Emily Malloy, who's just this amazing woman. Um, it's called um, it's Theology of Home Arranging the Seasons. And it's basically about flowers. It um, you know, goes from January to through to December and talks about the different seasons of growth and and um, dormancy and you know all of those those kinds of things that happen throughout the year. But Emily's really special in this in the fact that she did all the photography for this book. She wrote the book. She grew all the flowers for this book. She arranged the flowers for this book. I mean, she's just this incredible dynamo. She's also an incredible baker and um, she does a lot of recipes for us over at Theology of Home and writes. All kinds of beautiful things. So, um, so the, we're now out to four, um, four books for a theology of home. And a lot of these have made their way. I know the first one is, is, has been translated into Chinese and Lithuanian. We've got all kinds of requests from, um, in Polish and French and Spanish. So, uh, those keep rolling out. And then, um, I've written the book that my most recent book is called The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. And that came out in August. Um, so I've been spending a lot of time plugging that book and, um, working on on those aspects and I, I think that's kind of all that I've been up to it's been a lot and of course running our store um, which is always really fun and we you know we made it through another great Christmas and it's just fun to start thinking about what it is that we can um, help women with in their homes and gift giving and um, ways in which they can improve their lives through these very simple things but that I, I think can be significant in their in their homes. Yeah, and I would just also encourage people at our, our website, theologyofhome.com. It's a great way to stay in touch with us. We do our per, put our personal writings on there um, when those come out, as well as our interviews. 
and shows. And, um, but it's a great, we hear from women all the time that, you know, they wake up in the morning, they get a cup of coffee and they open up the daily collection email, and then they scroll through and see what they can read today, what can be inspirational and what can be practical. And, um, and it's, and oftentimes they, they no longer have to surf the web for, to stay up to date in the world, you know, that we've sort of curated that for them in a way that is filtering out stuff that has kind of ideology in it or junk in it and, or things that are offensive to their uh, views and values. So, um, so it's a, it's also just a good way, I think, in general, to stay informed. Well, thank you both so much again for joining us. And um, I hope you all will take a look at the many different um, books and um, the, the content that Carrie and Noel have uh, just told us about, which will be in the show notes, like I mentioned. And thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please head over to our website at isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the intercollegiate reviews, like modern age articles, debates, lectures, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we'll see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI.